In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In our cycle of Sunday morning gospel passages, we are entering something of a unique period of time. Usually, our gospel selections follow a single writer over the course of the year. And since Advent began, back around Thanksgiving, we've been reading selections from the Gospel of Matthew. And that will continue to be our primary gospel text up until next Advent, when we will switch over to Mark, and so on and so forth. However, Starting today, and continuing for the next four weeks, we will be reading passages from the Gospel of John. And not just any passages, each of these four weeks, we'll have a scene in which Jesus has a profound encounter with an individual. Today, we have Nicodemus. Next week, We'll have Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. Then his interaction with the man born blind. And finally, the raising of Lazarus. These are all detailed, dramatic stories that will be read in their entirety, which means that they are long, so be forewarned. And all of this makes them stand out from our regular Sunday reading routines. And makes one wonder, what is the purpose of spending almost the entirety of our Lent with these particular people and their particularly extended stories? There is much one could say about each of these encounters. They are that rich in narrative material, but it strikes me that there is at least one common theme that binds them all together. In each of these stories, Jesus is dealing with an individual who is, in some way, for some reason, separated from, or at odds with their community, their people. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night, because even though he has an honest desire to know Christ, he can't afford to be seen by his compatriots as fraternizing with the enemy. The Samaritan woman comes to the well, which is normally a very social activity, alone. And in the heat of midday, which is the last time one would want to be carrying around a heavy jug of water, because she has something of a sordid romantic history and is perhaps being shunned by her community. The man born blind is begging by the side of the road, forgotten, overlooked, ignored, assumed to be a sinner from his birth. And Lazarus, well, he's dead, <laughs> which means he's completely cut off from his loved ones, Mary and Martha, who are bereft at their loss. Each of these stories tell of a person who is isolated. And in each of these encounters, through his interactions with them, Jesus offers these isolated individuals the chance 
for the restoration or renewal of relationship. He gives them the gift of connection. To Nicodemus, he offers the chance for rebirth into a new fellowship of believers through water and the Spirit. To the Samaritan woman, he offers himself as a, a source of living water and then sends her back to her people no longer as an outcast, but as an evangelist. To the blind man, Jesus gives the gift of sight and a welcome into the community of disciples after the man's own people have cast him out. And to Lazarus, he gives not only new life, but also restores him to his beloved family who thought they had been separated from him forever. In each of these instances, Jesus reaches out to those who are isolated with the gift of relationship. Relationship with him and relationship with other people. Back in 1938, Harvard University launched a scientific study called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. Its goal was to determine what made for a good life, a happy, healthy, satisfying life. They took 268 male undergraduates, at that time Harvard was still all male, and 456 boys from Boston's poorest neighborhood and followed them into adulthood with regular check-ins on their physical health, their mental health, their careers, and other aspects of their life. The study eventually branched out to include their spouses, their children, their grandchildren, and it is now in its 85th year and has over 2,000 participants across four generations, all with a very low dropout rate, which has made it the longest and most fruitful study about aging and human development that has ever been done. As the years have passed, something like 200 articles and nine books have been written on the results from this study already, and the most recent came out in January. It's called The Good Life by the study's current director, Dr. Robert Waldinger, and his research partner, Dr. Mark Schultz. And the book summarizes two of the major findings that have emerged from this extensive study over the years about what makes for a good life. And the first finding was that by far, the number one thing that made for a happy life, a satisfying life for the individuals in their study, was the quality of their relationship. It was not money, it was not social status, or professional achievements, or accolades, or an abundance of possessions, or even fame. These were not the most significant indicators of happiness. In fact, they found that after a basic level of security and professional accomplishment was met, there was no discernible difference in those effects, on those things' effects on people's happiness, even if their wealth and their status increased exponentially. Finally, here was some proof that money can't buy happiness. Instead, 
as the original director of the study, Dr. George Valiant, boldly summarized, happiness equals love. Full stop. But something else that this study has found was that not only did good, strong, loving relationships make for a happier life, they also, interestingly, made for a healthier one. It turns out that the best indicator of your future physical health over the long term is not your blood pressure, or your diet, or even your level of exercise. It is the quality of your relationships. This, to me and to others, has been the more surprising finding of the study. As Dr. Waldinger recently said in an interview, quote, at first we didn't believe it. We were wondering how this could be possible. We thought it makes sense that if you have happy relationships, you'll be happier. But how could the quality of your relationships make it more or less likely that you would get coronary artery disease, or type 2 diabetes, or arthritis. We thought, maybe this isn't a real finding. Maybe it's by chance. Then other research groups began to find the same thing, and now it is a very robust finding. It's very well established that interpersonal connectedness and the quality of those connections really impact health as well as happiness." End quote. The study also found that the inverse of this was true, that loneliness kills. That isolation or social disconnection is as bad for your health as smoking half a pack of cigarettes a day. It is the one thing that almost assures a life that is neither happy nor healthy. Everyone needs at least a few solid, loving relationships with someone they can rely on and trust. When Jesus encounters these isolated individuals in the Gospel of John, I think he knew this. He may not have had the empirical data from an 85-year scientific study, but he knew that without the benefit of human connection, without the opportunity for love in their lives, and the chance for good quality relationships, these individuals would wither and perish. And it didn't matter to him who they were, a Pharisee, a Samaritan, he could not allow that to happen. He could not abide that death. Because as he famously tells Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That means Jesus was given in love in order to give love so that others might know love and through that love know life. Life in all its fullness. 
Jesus came to save the world, he said. And how does he spend his time when he is with us on that mission? Tending and establishing and restoring people to good and loving relationships with God, yes, but also with one another. Because as Jesus makes clear, there isn't actually that much of a distinction between the two. To love God and to love a neighbor are two sides of the same coin. He knew that life, a happy life, a fulfilling life, a healthy life, a holy life, depends upon the experience of loving relationships. And he knew this because he knew God, and God is relationship. A constant, loving interconnection between Father and Son and Spirit. And God longs for nothing more than for us in our lives to experience those gifts of reciprocity and mutuality, of giving and receiving, of trusting and supporting. It's no wonder that such relationships fill our hearts with happiness and our bodies with health because they fill our soul with the very presence of God, a God who is love. And love cannot exist in isolation but only ever in relationship. We don't often think of it this way, but Lent is a time for the restoration of relationships. A lot of the focus in this season is usually about restoring people to right relationship with God through the well-worn ways of prayer, and penitence and fast. But that can sometimes lead to a very individually focused Lent. What am I giving up? What am I taking on? What sins do I need to repent of to grow closer to God? All of this is part of the picture. But Lent has always also been about restoring people to right relationship with one another. As we heard on Ash Wednesday, historically, Lent was a time when those who had been separated from the body of the faithful, when they were reconciled and restored to the fellowship of the church. Perhaps that is why we get these four stories of isolated individuals being restored to relationship in this season of Lent. to remind us and encourage us to take as part of our Lenten discipline the work of prioritizing our own relationships with those close to us, tending current ones, mending broken ones, starting new ones. Because as Scripture and science now tell us, if we want to live a life that is happy, and healthy and holy, there is nothing more important that we could do. Our relationships with other people are not ancillary but essential to our salvation. 
To know that is to know what it takes for us to thrive in this one precious life that we get. For that is what it means to know deeply that God so loved this world. Amen.